so George Herbert was born into quite a, well, we call it gentry, almost nobility family in Wales, on the borders of England and Wales. Um, he, uh, he was the seventh child of ten. Um, but sadly, his father died when he was only three. So he hardly knew his father, you can imagine, before his father died. So he had two, he had four brothers older than him and two sisters. Um, and after him came two more brothers and one sister, ten altogether. They all survived into adulthood, which was quite something in those days. But sadly, many of them, as I say, died when they were young adults. They lived, to begin with, in their little border town of Montgomery, on the borders of England and Wales. Um, George Herbert's grandfather was a tough nut. Apparently he used to uh, tackle uh, the marauding wild Welsh. His, his job was to keep, keep England safe from these wild Welshmen. <laughs> Have we got any wild Welshmen here, or Welsh women? <laughs> anyway, that, that was his job. But George was brought up um, a different generation from his grandfather and brought up as a gentleman, uh, literally gentleman. Um, his family had actually moved from the castle up on the hill down into the town and he had, so he was brought up in a townhouse, a small town. Um, soon after his father died, his mother, who was a pretty remarkable character, and George remained absolutely devoted to his mother, Madeline. Please come in. Um, all his life. And um, <clears throat> they moved from Montgomery into Shropshire, the English side of the border, to near Shrewsbury on the Severn River. And the, his mother's family was rather better off than his father's family, and he had really had quite a nice life, having lost his dad. He had quite a good life for there. But in 1599, only six years after he was born, they all moved off to Oxford, because by that time his old brother was, had become a student at Oxford, and his mother, I think, wanted to keep an eye on him, as mothers do. Um, so, but then they moved after his elder brother had finished his education in Oxford, they moved to London and they moved to Charing Cross. And we have to imagine Charing Cross is rather different from what it is today. It was actually almost in the country between London, the city of London, and the city of Westminster. And it was a pretty rough place in some ways. I and mean, executions used to take place in Char by Charing Cross. So George may have well have seen some pretty horrific events there. But the advantage of being there, of course, is they met lots of people. Madeline, his wife, mother, was very hospitable, and they got to know all sorts of interesting people. And of course, George, who was a bright young man, boy, um, was able to be educated at Westminster School just down the road from their home. And at that time, uh, Westminster School was developing quite a reputation. It's now, of course, quite famous, but it was then relatively young, being founded by Elizabeth I. But Lancel Andrews, 
who was dean of Westminster, was one of the main influences on George Herbert Lancelot Andrews, who became Bishop of Winchester and a remarkable man for his, his wisdom, his linguistic gifts. He helped translate the Bible, King James Bible, he was one of those, and uh, influenced uh, George Herbert uh, considerably. There, he had a pretty tough education, as they did in those days at these schools, mainly classics, no maths, no modern languages, only dead languages, Latin and Greek, classics. But he also was familiarized with the Anglican's worship there at Westminster Abbey. Um, they were woken at 5 a.m. Uh, in the morning to say their prayers, their personal prayers and to wash, and then at 7 o'clock the headmaster appeared to hear them repeat their Latin texts. You had to be pretty awake, didn't you, in those days as a young boy, at 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, and then for the rest of the day the boys were divided into forms um, according to age. Older boys had to learn Hebrew as well as Greek and Latin, and they had music lessons twice a week, and of course they had wonderful musicians nearby at Westminster Abbey the singers and the organists and so on. So, well, there, George, you say, his education was perfected. Uh, he became a great Latin scholar, as well as being versed in Greek and Hebrew. And uh, not surprisingly, he won a scholarship to Cambridge at the age of 16 and went off to Trinity College, fine college, big college, and there he studied, continued to study, and he in fact stayed in Cambridge for the next 15 years of his life, from the age of 16 till he was 31. Um, he, if you venture to have a look at the uh, paperback, Complete poet, Poetry of George Herbert, there you'll find in the back there are lots of poems in Latin and Greek, which may interest you or may not interest you at all. But there are lots of poems. In fact, when his mother died, only a year or so before he died, he wrote a succession of poems, all in Latin, expressing his love for his, his mother and his uh, devotion to her. In George's last year at Westminster, his mother decided to marry again. Interestingly, she married a much younger man, Sir John Danvers, who was uh, reputed, um, we've got pictures of him, he was certainly a handsome young man. And apparently he was very struck by Magdalene's wit and character and uh, very attracted to her. And they uh, actually made a very happy marriage, although Sir John Danvers' old brother shook his head and said, this won't work, this won't work. <laughs> but in fact, uh, it did work very well. They were very happily married. Um, and John Danvers became a really excellent stepfather to George. In fact, George often wrote to his stepfather rather than write to his mother although he was, I say, devoted to his mother, he wrote to his father, quite his stepfather, to say, hey, I want some more money. <laughs> and Sir John Danvers was not a poor man. He was able to help. John Dunn, the famous poet, was a frequent visitor at the house. They lived after she married in Chelsea, which was really in the country in those days. Chelsea was really in the country, way out of the city. And they had a house right by the, by the river and a fine garden and so on. So George grew up knowing all about nice houses and about nice gardens, and that is all came to form his, helped to form his character. 
However, at Cambridge, the only adverse criticism of him was that he rather kept himself to himself and used to dress like a young fogey. <laughs> As he was a bit of a young fogey. Very different, in fact, from what he became in later life. Even his older brother said, well, he was a funny, he was a funny younger brother and uh, had some funny ways and used to get angry quite often. I think it was a, a fault of the whole family they used to get very passionately angry. And you'll see a bit of this in one of the poems. His poetry, likewise, is not very attractive. It's rather puritanical and rather snobbish and looking down on those who are, hadn't got the benefits of his education and his faith. But John Donne, of course, who wrote erotic poetry, is famous for his erotic poetry as much as for his holy sonnets, he um, was a good influence on, on George Herbert. I helped to broaden his outlook, I think, and become more human, more humane. Also at Cambridge, and this is also reflected in many of his poems, he became an expert debater. They used to have frequent debates, disputations, they were called, uh, where you were expected to take the opposite side from the one you actually believed in. So you had to learn how to speak from the opposite point of view of what you believed in. Very good exercise in, um, in broadening the mind and seeing how other people stood. You could do with that. I think in modern politics, actually, people actually learn to speak not what they believe, but actually speak for the sake of argument on the other side. Well, now, at this time, George's ambitions seemed to be largely worldly. He wanted to become an academic, and he strove to be, become the first, uh, become an, uh, the orator at Cambridge. The orator is the public figure who has to speak on all notable occasions in English or in Latin. And one of his early speeches, um, when he was um, only 19, uh, when the Prince of Wales, Henry, that was um, Charles I's old brother, died sadly. The whole nation was in mourning because he was very popular. He wrote two poems and they were both published by the university. So, bright young man, able to write um, poems. And in one of the poems, interestingly, he questioned God's providence. That was pretty a bold thing to do. God, how can you let the Prince of Wales die like this? It's a tragedy. Aren't you, are you in charge or not? That was the sort of question he was asking, and that was a question that came back to him later on in his life. What is God up to? George never doubted the existence of God, but he did have doubts about God's providence, about whether God was really in charge. However, he got his degree, and he was made a minor fellow of the college and a major fellow. Um, as I say, his ambition was to become university orator, because that could lead on to very important jobs, like being Secretary of State and all sorts of things. He was also writing flowery official letters um, to, for example, to the uh, young Duke of Buckingham, the favorite of James I. Um, very different, very different altogether from his later 
reputation to write flowery official letters was not really his style. He found later on that this wasn't actually going to work, that he couldn't actually put his heart into that. He also found, interesting that reading theology, which he'd set himself to do from the age of 19, he found theology rather dull. <laughs> he found theology rather dull. Any uh, people, people here like uh, George, you, a priest like me, ever found theology dull? And <laughs> there we go. Well, lucky you, lucky you. Theology can be dull if you're not attuned to it. And he, the only person that uh, George had ever really liked in Christian theology was St. Augustine. He loved St. Augustine because he found St. Augustine so engaging and open about his own life and his um, misdemeanors as he was as a young man, uh, having a mistress and having an illegitimate child and all that. He found all that rather engaging. So Augustine he loved. And I think St. Augustine was definitely his favorite author. So he was rather disappointed in theology, and you'll see this also reflected in one of his poems. In fact, in his poem, Divinity, Herbert summed up the Christian faith in words that I think we can all say, yes, yes, love God and love your neighbor. Watch and pray, do as you would be done by. He summed up the Christian faith in those three uh, three very memorable mottos, slogans. Love God, love your neighbor, watch and pray, and do as you would be done by. As for practice, he sums up Christian practice very simply in the words, take Christ's blood for wine. In other words, the sacrament of Holy Communion was important to him in practice. He saw its significance. We need to share in the sacrament. And he was always clear that though he was keen on private prayer, and a lot of his poems reflect that, it was also very clear that to join public worship was better than private prayer because you engage with others. You engage with others. You're not alone. So um, that's, I'm going to say, finish there. Are there questions about his life? Oh, I should add that he, because he did abandon Cambridge, um, uh, when he was offered a prebendary, a prebend store in a little rural church in Huntingdonshire, near Lake or Leighton, Bromsworld, which was close to Little Gidding, where his friend, he'd become very friendly with Nicholas Ferrer, and that the Ferrer family, and um, uh, he became prebend of, of this church, which was in a ruinous state, terrible state. So he took on really the job of trying to find funds um, to rebuild, restore that church. It became a lifelong task. Um, took that on. Uh, eventually, uh, after really, he thought of himself being a bit lost. He discovered the, that being a politician was, was not actually really what he wanted to do. Um, and so he was drawn more and more towards the priesthood, and then eventually became priest. There's a point to two little parishes outside Salisbury called Bemerton and Fuggleston. And, and at that time, he also married. Um, uh, he married um, 
some are related to his stepbrother, Jane Danvers, who turned out to be an excellent wife, a lovely looking woman. And uh, he moved to Bemerton with his wife, and a number of other orphaned relatives also moved in. Household families in those days were not quite as sort of nuclear as they are, tend to be nowadays. You very often took in relatives who were orphaned or in some ways needed support. So he took in a couple of nieces on his uh, stepfather's side, and they became a household at Bemerton. It's a lovely little church. Uh, Liz and I organized a pilgrimage a few years back for, for London people to go and visit Bemerton. It's only a mile out of Salisbury. It's really quite a short, not a particularly attractive walk now. It's changed a lot, unless you walk back through the meadows. That's lovely. Um, but Bemerton is a beautiful little church. And if any of you want to see what it looks like, there are pictures in, in uh, this book by John Drury. Um, and it, the church does remember George Herbert there regularly. They have regular sort of George Herbert days and festivals and so on. However, he was only there three years before he died. He died uh, probably of consumption. We're not quite sure. He was often ill during his life. And uh, he died of consumption in the age of 39. Uh, and uh, by that time, the only thing he published was Latin speeches. But he had this, he collected all these poems over the years that he'd written at various times. They're not dated, we can only guess, so we get some we can, more or less, we can, we can discover when they were written, many of them anyway. So he handed these poems over to his friend, Nicholas Feller, and said, uh, I don't know what to do with these. If you think they could be of any help to anybody, any poor wretched soul, like me, had a bit of a conflict with God sometimes, um, please uh, publish. But otherwise, burn them or whatever. Well, Nicholas Farrell read them, and he was absolutely thrilled with them, had them published straight away. And within a few years, those poems were printed and printed and reprinted and reprinted. They obviously found um, a ready readership um, in his own time. Um, soon, uh, and then his life was written by Isaac Walton, the author of The Complete Angler, wrote his life, uh, Isaac Walton. But I was talking to some, somebody, it was you, Anne, I think, uh, that he, we were questioning whether Isaac Walton got the story right. The answer is not really. He, he got a lot of it right, but unfortunately he suffered from what holy or writers of holy people do. He wrote it up, he, he coloured it up a bit, um, exaggerated um, Herbert's gifts, probably. And so his, his work is therefore less readable than it would have been if it had been kept as facts more. Um, but to be fair, George Hub didn't write much about himself. A lot of what you, we know about him, we only know from his poems. And then we're not always sure, as with poetry, how many are autobiographical, and how many are just talk, talking about the human condition. The, the reason, I think, why Herbert's poems are so loved is because he appeals to people of many different temperaments, many different uh, religious backgrounds, and um, we'll come on to love, bad, be welcome 
uh, in the course of the morning. But, and that is an amazing poem. And you notice that there's no religious word in that poem as such. It's love bade me welcome. Now you can interpret love as God or Christ or indeed a loving spirit in the world. And after all, many religions say that love is, is the best, highest virtue. So it has a universal significance. And I think that's why, where Herbert wins over many religious poets. His work has a kind of universal significance about the human condition, about the ups and downs of life and how we deal with them. <laughs>